Thanks so much, Bryce. I love that Bryce referenced uh, the book of Proverbs. I love the book of Proverbs. It's always had a a soft spot uh, in my heart. A couple of years ago, uh, someone gave me Timothy Keller's book of daily devotions in the book of Proverbs. 365, just little applications each and every day. And and I thought I'd only go through that uh, for a year, but I ended up doing it three years in a row. I just couldn't get enough of it. Book of Proverbs is just so wonderful, little bite-sized morsels of goodness that just sink down into the soul, and there's an application for every part of life. It's along with the entire canon of Scripture, Proverbs is one of those books that wherever you turn on the page, there will be something so specific that can encourage you. And just almost every morning, I'll just have, wow, God, moments reading through um, If you haven't read the book of Proverbs or haven't read it recently, I really encourage you to jump back in. And the first nine chapters of Proverbs, uh, Solomon takes to contrast wisdom and folly. Nine chapters, he says, this is the way of wisdom. This is awesome. This is the best way to live. Look at how wonderful chasing after wisdom and living in a wise way is compared to foolishness and What a dumb way to live. And look at the pain and look at the trauma and just look at the, like, compare this to this. And he spends nine chapters going, pursue this, forget about that. And I think it's summed up in Proverbs 9, 10 to 11, where Solomon writes, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. For through wisdom, your days will be many And years will be added to your life. If you are wise, your wisdom will reward you. If you are a mocker, you alone will suffer. The scriptures, the word of God, the inspired and errant word of God tells us that there is a wise way to live and there is a foolish way to live. That there is a way that will bring spiritual life and health and goodness Not a perfect life or an easy life, but spiritual health and spiritual goodness. And there's a way that will lead to death and conflict and pain. There is a right way to live and there is a wrong way to live. And and that, that sentiment right there doesn't go down too well in our culture, in our times, in this you do you sort of mentality. No one can tell you that your way of living is dumb or your way of living is wrong. You just do what is right for you. But the scriptures say... No, God made you. You are made in the image of God. He knows how this life works best and it's according to his wisdom. And we get to choose every single day whether we choose that path of wisdom or not. And James in the verses we're looking at today takes this this idea of comparing wisdom with folly from the Proverbs and, and brings it into his context, into our context. He's writing to Jews that are scattered throughout the ancient world and they're likely experiencing some conflict within their church. And so James says, look, there's really two ways you can go about this. You can follow God's way and live with spiritual wisdom, true wisdom, or you can follow the way of the world and live under what he calls false wisdom. Verse 13, chapter 3, James says, Who is wise and understanding among you? He begins with a rhetorical question. It says, anyone reading this, listening to this, if you pride yourself on, on your knowledge, on your wisdom of having the right answer, some, some superior knowledge in a certain thing, whether it's of the scriptures, whether it's of you know, having a great EQ, 
if you have this and if you pride yourself on this, then listen up and people leaning in will go, okay, what's he going to ask me to do? He says, let them show it. Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done and the humility that comes from wisdom. He doesn't say if you're wise and have understanding, recite the Torah or recite scripture or answer this ethical quandary. No, we know that James, this book is intensely practical. And he says, faith without deeds is dead. Faith without deeds is like a corpse. He reaches back into chapter one and he says, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. One twenty-two. do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves, do what it says. He's saying, if you are wise and understanding, it must show itself in the way that you live. James has no time for people who pride themselves on their biblical knowledge or being able to know how the world works and it not impacting their life whatsoever. He says, if you know God, If you understand the scriptures, it can't stay here. It must show itself in the way that you live. And he says, and then he goes on, instead of coming up with a list of a what to do, things to do, he goes into more of a how to do it. He says there's a way of obedience, a way of living in wisdom, and it is humble. The deed's done in humility. And this word is the same as meekness the gentleness of spirit in living in a way that doesn't draw attention to yourself, doesn't say, hey, look at me, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm living a wise life, show me affection, give me glory. It's, no, I know how to live and I'm not gonna make a song and dance about it. I'm just gonna humbly follow the word of the Lord. And James sets up our contrast here and he calls it false wisdom and true wisdom. And I think it's important to say that, that what we're about to look at, look at isn't a caricature of, of two different people. So we're going to look at a way of false wisdom, and we're going to see that it's pretty destructive. And we're going to look at true wisdom. We're going to see it's pretty awesome. And the idea isn't that someone stays in this false wisdom their whole life, that every decision they make is, is destructive and foolish and um, that you can be totally in that vein. We know that we're living in the already and not yet. As believers, if you're a follower of Jesus here today, your eternity is secure. Nothing can change that. But we all know that we can make bad decisions from time to time. We all know that sin still, we still fight against sin. And so there's going to be times when we do things that we really don't want to do or know we shouldn't do. So as we go through this list of false wisdom and true wisdom, let's just listen to the Spirit of God and see what He is pointing out to us. Now, for all you visual learners and for all you data people, you're about to love this next slide because I have a table, wonderful, and we are going to fill it in. And so some of you here are just like, yes, I love tables, I love spreadsheets. So we're going to, um, let's go through that together. And for all you words people, uh, we will also use words. How wonderful. So we're going to look at uh, false wisdom and true wisdom, and we are going to look at the origin, characteristics, and outcome. So we know where we're going. So let's take a look at false wisdom first. And I love how James puts it in quotation marks. He says, so-called wisdom. It's just like straight off the bat, he's like, this is dumb. Don't do this. What does a person who has false wisdom, wisdom or worldly wisdom look like? In verse 14, James says, this worldly wisdom will show itself in the characteristics of bitter envy, selfish ambition, boasting, and denying the truth, and that will come up in a second, I'm sure. And it will show it, and the fruit of it will be disorder and every evil practice. 
characteristics are bitter envy and selfish ambition. Selfish ambition in the original text is, is talking about like a fractious spirit, having a divisive spirit. It's used in the context of electioneering, of someone who promotes themselves and, and puts himself forward and, and kind of belittles other people and says, ah, now what they believe in the way they're going about things is dumb. Like, I've, I've got the answers. I'm doing the right thing. Look, look at me. Look at me. I have the knowledge. I know what I'm doing. I'm right. They're wrong. And it's this elevating of self and a dismissing of other people. The sort of selfish ambition is a person who can't rejoice with other people in their success, can't take advice, not teachable. This person is hypercritical, focusing on other people's flaws and not really being aware of their own. This person creates cliques and division, overly focused on their rights, their dignity, insists on their way being the right way. And this worldly person boasts about it James says, if you harbor selfish ambition and bitter envy in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. And you think, why on earth would someone boast about that? Why would you be proud of having a a divisive spirit? Well, it's because they think they're right. They think that the division is the result of other people. Well, I'm just standing on the truth. Oh, I know the way to go. And if they're the ones who are opposing me, then they're the ones who are being divisive. Do we see how this can just creep into our hearts a little bit? I think it's actually a a great picture of what's happening with the world and the church at the moment. You think the world says, church, Christians, you're the ones who are being divisive. You guys are the ones who who are creating the problem here. We're holding fast to God's word and culture shifts and they look back at us and go, you are the ones with the problem. There's nothing wrong with us. Nothing wrong. We're the ones who are tolerant and we love everybody. Christians, you're the ones who are being divisive. They don't see. Having that spirit shows itself in thinking that you're wrong, you're better, smarter, more righteous, more holy. By pointing out everybody else's flaws and failings, you're just being loyal to the truth. And you boast about it. And I wonder just in in the little ways this can show itself in our lives. I mentioned at the 9 a.m. I think for Gabrielle and I, I've, I've seen that just when we had um, Hadassah and realizing that there's little camps and, and little factions and the way that you raise a baby. There are the purists and the people who, oh, we don't use white noise. No, 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 not white noise. No, babies don't need that. Or those who, oh, um, yeah, only breastfeeding, no formula, no formula for our baby. No, it's it's um, no, it's just it's best that way. Or oh yeah, we sleep trained right from the very start. You know, oh your baby doesn't sleep. Oh okay, no that's all right. You're obviously doing it wrong. <laughs> you know, and it's and it is kind of funny, but at the same time, I just I wonder if I just I I did. I saw a sense of just divisiveness there, and sometimes I saw it in myself too. And realizing that we're just we're so good at creating little camps, aren't we? We're so good at just even in tiny little ways separating ourselves from other people and going, oh, the way I'm doing this is right. The way that I'm raising this baby is right. And if other people are doing it differently, then actually, no, I, I don't agree with that. And I don't, I don't really want to spend time with them or take any advice from them because I know, I know the way of doing this. You take it from parenting, you can, man, have a look at, at politics and, you know, backseat drivers and people who just love to critique and I know the way to deal with the COVID pandemic. 
I know what the tax system will be that can fix our problems. I know what we should do to deal with the poor, how we can help them. It's so easy to, to, not, to know we have the right answers. We know what the government should do. We know how things should be run. We know we have the secret wisdom, the secret insight. And these little echo chambers of rightness can just so perpetuate in our lives. Get sucked down into little wormholes of, man, conspiracy theories and COVID's a hoax, whatever. I, like, if you believe, I don't care. It's COVID. It's real. Um, but do you see how just in little ways this can creep into our hearts? And it's, I think it's bad enough when it comes to little things. It is poison when it comes to issues in the church. Poison when it comes to issues in the church. And, and when it comes to, to matters of doctrine that, that just aren't essential is when it starts to become really, really damaging. There are going to be positions the street holds on theological issues that you aren't going to agree with. You aren't going to agree with everything that, that this church subscribes to and believes. You can read our statement of faith. I hope you agree with all of it. When it comes to the non-essential issues, we need to have some liberty and we need to land there humbly. When it comes to issues of the essentials of doctrine, there must be unity there. There must be unity. I think we can uh, agree with the words of St. Augustine who said, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, love. And so what I'm saying here is if there is something, there's a position the street holds to, if, if something that I share in a message or is shared in a message, you go, oh, actually, I'm not sure about that. What I'm asking you to do is not to harbor bitter envy, frustration in your hearts and go and talk with someone about it. Oh, can you believe Jerem said that? Or do you know the street holds to this position and create a little group? What I'm asking you to do is if you have something you disagree with, please come and talk with me. Talk with an elder to say, hey, um, you know, I'm not quite sure about this. Well, I read the scripture differently. Can you explain how, how the street has landed on this position? And come humbly, and we will court it all, and we'll talk, and we will learn from each other. But please don't create division on the non-essential issues. The essential issues, however, are super important. And we will never, ever sacrifice truth on the altar of peace. Peace is good. We want unity. We want to be a body that works together. But when it comes to issues of false doctrine and false teaching, we got a problem. If, you hear, if you're here and you deny the Trinity, if you deny God as three, three persons, each person is fully God, but there is one God, if you deny that, I can't have unity with you. We cannot have unity there because that is an essential, essential doctrine. But if you think church should be done on a Saturday as opposed to a Sunday, man, go hard. There's liberty there, you know, that's fine. If you deny the substitutionary atonement of Jesus, if you say Jesus on the cross, that was just a picture. That was just an example. He didn't, he didn't take God's wrath. He didn't take our sin. He was just showing us this is a good way of, of self-sacrifice. If you say that's a picture and that actually the finished work wasn't done, if he didn't take sin on himself, then, then there's no unity here. I'm sorry, we're, we're going to have conflict because that is an essential doctrine. But if you think communion needs to be wine, it needs to be Merlot or Pinot as opposed to juice, man, go hard. You can have liberty on that one. That's fine. I'm down with that. Like maybe 
Maybe we'll change it. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? There are issues that are so important that we must land on it. There must be unity on. And that if someone rejects, then there will be division. Sometimes division is okay. In Titus 3, Paul says to Titus, if someone comes into your church and they spread lies and false doctrine, approach them to their face and rebuke them once. And if they continue to do it, he says, have nothing to do with them. It is that important that we agree on the essentials. And the non-essentials, hey, liberty and all things love. Having a fractious spirit and bitter envy are just cancer in our bones, poison in the church. So where on earth does it come from? And why on earth would we, as followers of Jesus, have anything to do with it? Why would we allow that to creep into our lives? Let's look at where it comes from. Let's fill in the rest of that table and look at the origin. James says in verse 15, uh, This wisdom isn't from heaven. It's not from God. It is earthly, unspiritual, and ultimately, it's demonic. James says this false wisdom is earthly. It doesn't consider eternity. It is rooted in the here and now. It is just so focused on temporary things, my lot, my job, my family, my comfort. It is, it is a, if you took a picture of a person just looking down at the earth, this is that wisdom. This is where it comes from, here and now. It doesn't consider eternity. It doesn't look up and say, man, there's something bigger going on. It says earthly. It's unspiritual. It's just devoid of anything life-giving from the Holy Spirit. It's just base. It's natural. It's flesh and blood. There's no life there. And ultimately, it's demonic because the result is disorder and every evil practice. Whoa, demonic? Really, James? Why'd you have to go there? Is that a bit too far? Not at all. I think of the words, I think it's C.S. Lewis who said, the greatest success of the devil is convincing us that he doesn't exist. Convincing us that he doesn't exist. He exists, is very real, and his purpose is total carnage and destruction. That is his goal. Think of John 10.10. Jesus says, I have come to give you abundant life, but the devil has come to steal and kill and destroy. His purpose isn't just to put some roadblocks in your way. The devil isn't just this person who's opposed to you, who wants to make life just a little bit more difficult, or stop you from reading the word in the morning, or dangle a little bit of sin in front of your face. He's not annoying. He is destructive. He is not frustrating. He is hell-bent on destroying your life and destroying the church. That is his goal. He has set himself up in total rebellion to God. So anything that reflects God, anything good, anything spiritual, anything from heaven, the devil go anything from heaven, the devil says, I'm gonna go after that. I want to destroy that. If you're experiencing conflict in your marriage at the moment, you can bet your bottom dollar that the devil has his hooks in there and he's trying to tear you apart. His goal is to destroy Christian marriage, to turn children against their parents, to destroy homes. And he will use lies, his native language is lies, to get his hooks in there. You think about the ways that, that conflict in marriage can begin, and it's just a little bit of selfishness sometimes. On the most minute scale, I'll share this 
pithy little story with you. The other day, uh, most evenings when Gabs and I are home together, we will finish the day with a cup of tea on the couch and a chat. And the other day, sitting there, and Gabs goes, cup of tea? I go, yeah, sounds good. And then um, in my spirit, I went, oh, it's her turn to make the tea. <laughs> oh, Jerem, you make it. I reckon nine times out of ten, that's you in the kitchen, man. It's her turn. You're a pastor. Let her serve you. Like, come on. <laughs> and I'm, I mean, I'm being, I'm being open here. These are just some of the, you know, sin still reigns in my body too. And then just this little bit of, nah, put your feet up, man. You know, let your wife serve you. And this just little bit of divisiveness just grows in there. And it felt good. It felt right. Put your feet up, Jerem. Let your wife make you a cup of tea. When, when, I'm, when I'm drinking from God's fountain and when I'm living the, the true wisdom from heaven, man, I don't care. I'll make you 10 cups of tea like, without a complaint. But those days when my mind is earthly and I'm drinking the world's Kool-Aid, that's when those moments come in. When I'm just like, nah, she can make you a cup of tea. Put your feet up, man. What about in the most extreme circumstance or ones that really start to become issues are when someone from the opposite sex pays you a bit of attention, compliments you. Ooh, that feels nice. And then you start to seek out their company. Oh, this person, oh man, they make me feel good. Oh man, I really enjoy her company. Man, this just feels great. And the feeling grows and it feels good because the enemy is lying to you. He is lying to you and he is saying this person, this feeling that you're getting from this woman, this man who is not your spouse feels good. Oh, I want, you should pursue that because your contentment and your comfort are the most important thing in this world. So you're not getting it from your wife or your husband at the moment. Things are a bit hard at home. So this feels good. Keep going after that. This is what the devil is after in your marriage. And if you are in that at the moment, I want you to see that this is not just a temptation. This is not just a little roadblock. This is him with his hooks in going, I'm going to kill your marriage. And it's going to use things that feel good. This is earthly wisdom. And it's, see, the result is disorder. The result is divisiveness in a marriage. And it's destructive. And when you and your wife, when you and your husband are separated, devil's laughing his head off this is where things go I'm serious I'm not making a joke here this is serious divisiveness in your marriage is not from God a feeling of attraction to someone not your husband not your wife is not from God it's from the enemy and we need to root it out because the lie is that your life is about you see this is earthly right earthly wisdom. Your life is about you, your comfort. Your spouse should be there to satisfy you, to complete you, to make you feel good. And if she's not doing it, if he's not doing it, there's something wrong with them. See, if we don't get our worldview, if we don't view life, if we don't view our marriage, and if we don't view our workplace and, and the gathering and just everything in life, if we don't go, how do I see it? If I don't see it through this, if I don't go, God, help me make sense of what I'm seeing in the world and what I'm seeing in my heart. If we don't look through this, the world is going to give you some lenses to look through, and you do not want that prescription. 
Because that is going to be lies and deceit and it's going to put you up on the throne and the world is going to say, you know best. God's holding out on you. If you don't have what you want, it's because God is holding out on you, so you need to go after it. We need to start seeing these things through spiritual eyes. This is the wisdom we need from heaven. Because the wisdom of earth, just in a really tiny little way, I saw it in a, in a shop front yesterday. The wisdom from the world will say things like this to you. This is on a, a, an, an op shop window. Can't live without it. What, this, this thing? This sofa? This chair? This car? Can't live without it? Pay for it later and go into debt. How often do we, do we have that sense of, man, if I just get this thing, if I just get those new jeans, then I'll feel good. If I just get, if I just get, if I just get, can't live without it. This is the lens through which the world would have us look, and it is lies, and it is destructive. It is not the wisdom from heaven. We need to look through the world with spiritual eyes. Jesus said to his disciples in Luke 21, 34, he says, guys, be careful. Be careful or your hearts will be weighed down with carousing, with partying, seeking after good times, hedonism, with drunkenness and the anxieties of life. The little things will weigh you down if you look at things with an earthly mindset. Proverbs 4.23, above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. Philippians 2.3, do nothing out of selfish ambition. Do nothing out of this self-promotion. Do nothing out of this divisive character or vain conceit, but in humility, look to others' needs. Value others above yourself. Living out of false wisdom, rooted in the ground, looking at your needs, ultimately is from the devil and is just not the great way to live. There must be a better way. Surely there's a better way. Yes, there's a better way. And James goes into it now. Let's look into this. James says there's a way of living out of true wisdom that is meek, is humble, is gentle. And if we look at our table, it is as opposed to being rooted in earth, uh, unspiritual and demonic, it is from heaven. And instead of the result being disorder and every vile practice, the result is peace and a harvest of righteousness. This one just sounds much better, doesn't it? This one sounds amazing. James, what else do you have to say for us? Describe this wisdom to us. He says, the wisdom that comes down from heaven is first of all, pure. This wisdom is immaculate, is without fault. It is without malice. It is without any impurity in it whatsoever that would seek to be self-serving, that would seek to be divisive, that would seek to come from any place of bitterness. This wisdom is pure, pure. I feel like James could just stop there and we're like, cool, done. That's the one I want, not this one. But he just lays it on. He's gonna just double down on this. He says, this wisdom is pure and it is peace loving. Ah, we lovers of peace. This is a disposition that says when any moment of, of, of conflict comes up or you sense that bit of divisiveness coming up in you or you sense that, that oh, I actually don't, I don't want to hang out with that person. It goes, actually, I'm going to look at what's going on here. How can, I, how can I have unity with this person? I mean, I might not be their best mate, but how can I at least you know, try and find some common ground? It's a disposition that Paul writes about in Romans 12, 18. He says, 
if possible, so far as it depends on you, live at peace with all people. If possible, as far as it depends on you. He doubly qualifies it. He says, you can only own your part. In any conflict, in any situation where you are experiencing this divisiveness with people, the good news and the bad news is you are only responsible for your part. You can't make the other party come to the table. You can't make the other party respond to you in love. You can't make the other party be humble and gentle, but you can. You can only own your part. And so that's why Paul says, if, at, if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with all people. You know, it's a disposition that, that just doesn't feel threatened when conflict comes. It doesn't feel threatened when people correct you. I wonder if some of us here have welded, have joined correction to rejection. That when someone corrects you on something, you feel rejected in yourself. We can separate those things out, you know. When someone corrects you and says, actually, um, it's not pronounced like that, it's pronounced like this. You don't go, oh, they don't like me. Oh, that just felt awful. You can actually go, oh, wow, thank you for, thank you for enlightening me. That's awesome. I didn't know that. Or when someone snaps at you in the workplace or snaps at you at home, you don't just go, oh, man, what's their issue? Oh, I don't want to hang out with them. Oh, what, man, they must be an awful person. They go, oh, that, man, that didn't sound like that came from a healthy place. I wonder, I wonder what's going on there. And you go, hey, man, like, man, the way you said it before, that doesn't seem like you. Can I just ask what's going on? You're a bit stressed, something else happening in your life? It's peace-loving doesn't go, ah, no, reject that. No, I'm going to divide myself from them. It goes, how can I find unity here? You look at it with spiritual eyes. This wisdom is pure. It's peace-loving, and it's considerate. I love how one commentator said this word, considerate. He said it's probably best known as sweet reasonableness. Imagine being known that way. Imagine if I could introduce Anna to you and say, this is Anna Holmes. She's a, she's a mom, she's a wife, she's a business owner, and she's sweetly reasonable. Imagine being introduced that way. It would just be wonderful, wouldn't it? And it's true. Thank you, she is. Sweetly reasonable. This is someone who is willing to yield, willing to lay themselves down. It's, it's a, uh, I think an apt picture is, um, I think Martin Luther used it, two goats who meet on a bridge. And they can't go around each other. They can't back down. And they're just stuck in the middle of the bridge going nowhere. And they don't want to fight about it because they'll just end badly. And so what does one goat do? Lays himself down, lets the other goat trample all over him. And then they both get up and they can go their separate ways. One goat, one person just laying themselves down. Hey, I don't mind. Walk all over me. It's all good. I don't need to fight this one. I don't need to win this one. My ego, my mana, my, my identity isn't tied up in winning this argument. It's not tied up in winning you over to my side. Like, man, I want unity here. So yeah, you can walk all over me. I'm all good. In some situations, that's not right. In some situations, if you're being abused, if there is violence in your household, that is not okay. Let me be very clear about that. I'm talking about petty little disagreements. You can, you can, you can acquiesce. You can yield. You can be sweetly reasonable. It's pure. It's peace-loving. 
It is sweetly reasonable and it is submissive. And submissive here means good for persuasion. It's sort of like a, come on, I want you, I want you to win me over. Oh, I don't know if I agree with you, but I want you to win me over to your point of view. How great would that be if you are just so, if you're just not held on to your views and your rightness and your, this is the way it is and I'm not gonna move and everyone else needs to agree with, agree with me. What if it was like a, oh, win me over, oh, get me around to your point of view, I wanna see if you can do it. Genuinely, if you are open to learning and open to being teachable, man, teachableness is one of the most important life skills we could develop coming up against, with other people and going, man, this person has something that I could probably learn from, as opposed to, I'm pretty sure I know everything I need to know already. Being open to being teachable, learning from other people. Peace-loving, man, James just goes on. This guy's just laying it down. Peace-loving, sweetly reasonable, good for persuasion, and full of mercy and good fruit. This mercy shows kindness and goodness to those who are battling. Kindness and goodness to those who are struggling. Ephesians 2, 4, we look at it, it's what God did for us, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. Such a wise person is merciful because they know they have been shown mercy. We can give it because we've, excuse me, because we've received it. And lastly, James finishes this up. This wisdom is pure. It is peace-loving. It is sweetly reasonable. It is good for persuasion, full of mercy and good fruit, and impartial and sincere. Impartial means without uncertainty or double-mindedness. Back in James chapter 1, James talked about the double-minded man being unstable in everything they do. He said it's not like that. It is someone who just knows where they sit, knows where they stand. They're not double-minded. And the sincerity is such a person who is undisguised. Who they are at home is the same as who they are at work, is who they say, same as they are at church. Just a consistency in character. Nothing false. Don't need to put a show on. Just consistent all the time because they know their identity. What a description of a good life, hey? You compare false wisdom to true wisdom. Look at that list. Look at the difference. Which one do you want? It just looks so wonderful, doesn't that list on the right? It almost looks like, well, in fact, it looks a lot like Jesus, doesn't it? How does Jesus describe himself to us? Matthew 11, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. He doesn't say, I am strong and wise and powerful, though he is. He doesn't say, I'm full of joy and, and, and health and all good things, though he is. He says, I am gentle. I am humble in heart. Oh, how good is Jesus? Look, it's, I've, I've got some scriptures up on the screen. You can take a photo if you want and read them later. But he lived these, lived these out. He lived a life of absolute purity. He loves peace. He is sweetly reasonable. He is good for persuasion. He's full of mercy and good fruit. He's impartial and he's sincere.
true wisdom comes down from heaven because Jesus Christ is from heaven. True wisdom is from heaven because Jesus Christ is, he exhibits perfect wisdom. Fix our eyes on him. That's the way to live. He lived the perfect life. If earthly wisdom, if false wisdom is rooted in the here and now and eyes down, true wisdom goes, I'm gonna look at Jesus. I'm gonna look at how he lived and I'm gonna try and do my best through the power of his spirit to go after that. Your eyes are rooted in eternity knowing that one day because of his finished work, you will stand before God, you will stand before your creator and we will give an account. Every word uttered, every deed done. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you will plead the blood of Christ and you will say, he died for me. And God will say, well done my good and faithful servant. Enter into your inheritance. That day, that day must frame everything that we do. I'm gonna see him one day. That must, that must frame every word that comes out of my mouth, every deed that I do, every dollar that I spend should be in light of eternity. That is true wisdom. Otherwise, like I said, you're gonna be sucked into the world's way of living. And every word you say and every, every dollar you spend and every little division is gonna come because you are fixed on the here and now. And you will be on the throne of your own life. And we do not make good gods. We make terrible gods. Is there division? Is there fractiousness? Is there contention? I wonder which wisdom we are drawing from. Proverbs 3, 13, 17 says, Blessed are those who find wisdom, those who gain understanding, who ways are pleasant ways, and all her paths are peace. And so we come to our conclusion. Peace, shalom, flourishing. As Jamie and the musicians come up, let's just take a quick look at peace. Verse 18, James says, Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. What is this harvest of righteousness? It's a community of followers of Jesus who are dedicated to living out the way of wisdom. A harvest of righteousness is a community of people who live out a pure, peace-loving, sweetly reasonable, good for persuasion, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere life because it is sown in a community of peace. This is the harvest, a group of people. It, it starts with individuals, manifests in the, in the community, dedicated to peace. What did Jesus say? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Sons of God. We're about to take communion. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And he says sons of God because their lives have been forever changed by the Son of God, right? He gave us new hearts. He gives us new affections. He takes our eyes off the things of the earth and roots them in heaven. He, gives us a new, he invites us into a new kingdom, a new way of living. He washes away our sin, our need to be right. He kills the ego. Our need to divide and separate ourselves from people and elevate ourselves and say, my way or the highway. He just humbles us right out of it. And he says, hey, there's a new way of living. Walk in it. Forget false wisdom from the world. It only ends in disorder. He invites us into true wisdom, peace, and a harvest of righteousness. Let us look to Jesus.
the one who allowed himself to be trampled in the dust so we could be lifted to the heavens.